and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by American Jewish Committee. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines to help you understand what they all mean for America, Israel, and the Jewish people. I'm Sefi Kogan. And I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman. Would you like to be a guest in our recording studio? Here's your chance. Please take some time to fill out our audience survey available now at ajc.org slash podcast survey. It will only take a minute, and even if you don't land a guest spot, you will receive a special gift from AJC. Your feedback will help shape future episodes of People of the Pod. Go to ajc.org slash podcast survey. For the first time since 2009, someone not named Benjamin Netanyahu is Prime Minister of Israel. To understand what to expect from the new government, joining us now is Lahav Harkov, the senior diplomatic correspondent at the Jerusalem Post. Lahav, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. So, Israel has a new prime minister. In a nutshell, who is Naftali Bennett? Well, Naftali Bennett, he's 49 years old, born in Israel, but grew up for a few years in Teaneck, New Jersey, and in Canada, I believe Toronto, working abroad. Religious Zionist, he served in the IDF as an officer in the elite Sayeret Matkal unit. After that, went to law school and then took part in a cybersecurity startup, was the CEO and founder of the startup. He, he moved to New York with his wife for part of working on that startup, and it sold for $130 million. Mm. Then he came back to Israel right on time for the second Lebanon war. One of the things that Israelis remember about that war is that Israel seemed unprepared for it. And a lot of the uh, reservists had not been trained in a very long time. Bennett was a reservist fighting in that war, and he was part of a, a protest movement after the war ended that more needed to be done to have been prepared and to be prepared for future wars. And that brought him before opposition leader Benjamin Netanyahu. Eventually, Bennett became Netanyahu's chief of staff. And then he ran for politics in Israel's 2013 election. He won the first ever primary in the Bayit UD party. And he was sort of seen as this fresh face in politics, young bringing in a sort of new fighting spirit to the right wing and to the sort of settler politics in Israel. So Naftali Bennett, from this story, he's been in politics for, it sounds like, less than a decade, kind of formally in in politics, and finds himself now at age 49 as the prime minister of Israel, which is quite a meteoric rise. I want to go a little bit deeper into something that you said. You, you mentioned a couple of times that he himself is a religious Zionist or that he led a religious Zionist party. And just for our listeners, religious Zionism, maybe outside of Israel, sounds like an innocuous term, but it refers to a specific type of religious observance and a specific type of Zionism. It it really has a generally a pretty specific meaning. But recent reporting by Anshul Pfeffer in Haaretz and Noga Tarnopolsky in The New York Times has suggested that Bennett is actually neither as right wing nor as religious as he has made himself out to be. What's your take on that? First of all, I don't go around judging people of how religious they are. If someone calls themselves Orthodox and they... (laughs) Nor do I. Yeah, and they nominally keep Shabbat, like, okay, so you're Orthodox. Like, you know, I'm not not standing there with a ruler measuring the size of his kippah, um, which some people, (laughs) I think, would like to do the way they talk about him. So I don't think that that's fair. Politically, I think it's fine to look at him and see how right-wing or moderate he might be. I think over his entire time in politics, he has been relatively moderate on social issues. To begin with, he campaigned as a moderate on social issues, also as a reformist on religion and state matters. But the political realities of Israel and the the role of the ultra-Orthodox, the Haredi parties in politics, meant that he could not act as much on those ideas. He had to prioritize. And also really the reality within his former party Within the Bayit UD party, people were more sort of conservative than he was. And this coming government has a mostly domestic agenda. So that is an area where he is moderate. And so he will likely make moderate moves because he's now in a government where people are to the left of him and not to the right of him. Now, I've been saying to everyone who asks that, yes, this government has a domestic agenda, but in the Middle East, international affairs have a way of coming to you, even if you don't want to go to them. 
So on that, on matters of the Palestinians, Iran, other things, he is a hawk and he will have to negotiate his position with coalition partners that, again, are to his left. And so he will have to take stances that are more moderate than what he normally would, than what he says is what he really thinks, because there's no other way for this coalition to survive. If the extremes on either end, you know, insist on their position, there's not going to be a coalition. So, you know, we're not going to have the merits vision of withdrawing all territory Israel entered in June of 1967. And we're not going to have Natalia Bennett's vision of extending Israeli sovereignty to all of the Jewish communities in Judea and Samaria. And I want to come back to exactly what the vision of this government is on issues both domestic and diplomatic. But before we do, every now and then you hear about a country where the actual head of government, like the prime minister, like Naftali Bennett in this case, isn't really the most important politician in the government. Is that perhaps the case in Israel now with Yair Lapid? I think it remains to be seen, but that it is definitely a possibility. Yair Lapid is the somewhat new Israeli term, alternate prime minister, which means that there will be a rotation for prime minister in two years and three months, again, if the government lasts that long. In the meantime, he will be foreign minister. Now, under Netanyahu, Netanyahu really, really dominated the sphere of international relations and did not let his foreign ministers take the lead on those issues. And often he just took the role of foreign minister at the same time as he was prime minister. So in this government, Lapid's going to be a real foreign minister. And he is supposed to have the leading role in international relations, even though, you know, it's not like Bennett's going to ignore it completely. He'll still be meeting with world leaders and have, you know, a say. But definitely Bennett, Lapid will be more dominant in that sphere. And again, because Bennett heads a small party and also, you know, can't just push through all the policies that he wants, Lapid will have a big say. On the other hand, the way this coalition is set up, especially the security cabinet, the right-wing bloc, which consists of Bennett's Yamina party, which I didn't mention earlier, he broke off from the religious Zionist party and formed Yamina, which is to the right of Likud, but not necessarily religious. It mixes religious and secular people. Anyway, so the right-wing bloc is them and a party called New Hope, which is led by Gidon Saar, a former Likud minister who had a falling out in Netanyahu. And they're supposed to have an equal amount of seats in the security cabinet, which is the forum that makes decisions on diplomacy and security, as all the other parties. So their influence in the cabinet, at least numbers-wise, will outweigh how many votes they actually got. And you mentioned that Bennett is maybe motivated by social moderation and military or security hawkishness. What would you say are kind of the motivating issues for Yair Lapid? Yair Lapid is a centrist in Israeli politics. He's fairly socially liberal. He's somewhat of a secularist. He wants less of an attachment between religion and state in Israel than we have now. He's foreign minister because he actually cares a lot about the international sphere in Israel. He feels that, you know, Netanyahu is often acclaimed as like a master in international relations, but there are certain areas that he neglected or certain policies that Lapid really disagrees with. Lapid is really emphasizing in his first days and his early remarks, sort of restoring balance to the U.S.-Israel relationship and trying to have a better friendship with members of the Democratic Party, with the European Union as well, where Netanyahu sort of took a stance of getting closer to more contrarian figures in the European Union, like Hungary and Poland and other countries that would be willing to block moves that Israel considered problematic. Lapid doesn't want Israel to be so tied to illiberal figures like Viktor Orban of Hungary. But it will be interesting to see because there is a bit of a paradox there because Hungary sort of does what Israel needs to be done in the EU and blocks all sorts of statements and policies that would be problematic for Israel. So he'll have to figure out, you know, his ideals and his reality, how to square them with each other. There was a, a major piece of news about this new government is that it features Mansour Abbas's Ram party, which is an Arab party, actually a kind of a, a right wing Islamist party, not maybe the most obvious contender for which would be the first Arab party to play such a significant role in an Israeli government. But indeed, that's exactly what happened. What do you make of that news? What led to that? And how important is that for the future of Arab Jewish cooperation within Israel? So uh, first of all, Ram is in the coalition, but not in the government. They didn't take any ministerial role, but that's still a big deal. And that's something that no Arab party has done in something like 50 years. 
And certainly this is the first time that there's an Islamist party. You know, they're affiliated with the Islamist movement and, you know, same origins as the Muslim Brotherhood. I think that it is a huge milestone and, and just a huge marker of progress in relations between Jews and Arabs in Israel. Because Mansour Abbas sort of looked at the political situation and realized that it doesn't look like there's going to be immediate progress on the Palestinian front, but he still has constituents and voters who have immediate needs from the government and that cooperating with the government will get those needs met a lot better than mostly being hostile to this government because of the Palestinian issue. So they're cooperating on civic issues, which is also the reason why he's not in the government, meaning not in the cabinet and only in the parliamentary coalition, because if you're a minister, then you have collective responsibility for government actions. And that includes things vis-a-vis the Palestinians. So, you know, like last night's, um, well, I, I don't know when this podcast is coming out, but it's Wednesday when we're recording this. And last night, Israel uh, struck targets in Gaza after the Hamas terrorists launched incendiary balloons in Israel's south. That might have been a bigger problem for him if he was a minister and held a collective responsibility for it. But this way, he can sort of hold the stick at both ends. You mentioned earlier that this will be largely a domestically focused government and that that kind of is what holds appeal for Mansour Abbas. So not only on the Arab kind of portfolio, but just in general, domestically. What does this government intend to accomplish? I think their first priority is post-corona recovery, whether it's economically, unemployment is twice what it was before coronavirus. It's still relatively low, but it's for Israel, you know, it's twice as high. And there's the health issue. Israel's health services really dealt with coronavirus valiantly, but our health services are kind of starved and lacking in budgets and needs some reform overall. So that's another thing. The education system, I think, you know, I see people in the U.S. as well that a lot of issues with education sort of have come to light when your kids are studying in your living room and you see everything that's going on. So those kinds of domestic issues. Mm -hmm. Bennett is somewhat to the right of Netanyahu, as you mentioned, and Lapid is somewhat to the left. They are kind of this two-headed, I don't want to say monster, two-headed prime minister. What kind of changes should we expect then, you know, separate from the domestic agenda on military and foreign policy issues? Does this change Israel's approach to Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza, to the Iran nuclear negotiations, to the Abraham Accords, to relations with the U.S.? You know, what should we expect in those arenas? I wish I had answers to all those questions, but the politicians themselves are, uh, (laughs) their answers are generally like, I just started, give me some time. But, you know, I I had mentioned earlier with the U.S. relationship that Lapid is already really emphasizing that he wants to repair and rebuild ties with the Democratic Party in the U.S. That's a really big priority with him. And and to talk about the EU, to have a friendlier approach to some of the Western European countries, as I had mentioned. When it comes to Iran, Bennett, and Lapid both really oppose the Iran deal. The question is whether they're going to make more of a public show about it, or are they going to keep it in private with Biden and sort of try to use that as an opportunity to negotiate to get more security assurances or anything else from the United States, which is the approach that Lapid has long advocated. He thought that Netanyahu sort of went too far in opposing the Iran deal back in 2015. So, I think things might be a little quieter on that front specifically. You mentioned the airstrikes against Gaza in response to those balloons intended to spark wildfires in southern Israel. Intended and succeeded. Correct. Sure. Yes. And, you know, I I hope this doesn't sound conspiratorial of me, but like, you know, under the Netanyahu government, Israel didn't always respond to every time that that happened. And so it certainly seems like this new government felt pressure to kind of have a hard response, you know, to demonstrate to the Israeli public that they take the terrorist threats from Gaza just as seriously as Netanyahu does. I mean, do you think that that's basically right? Just as seriously and maybe even more seriously, because under Netanyahu, the the reaction wasn't necessarily an airstrike after every balloon. We'll have to see where things go moving forward, really. I would say like Netanyahu has been kind of inconsistent on these kinds of things. So I can't, you can't say if, that he's doing the same as Netanyahu or more than Netanyahu. He's not doing less, though. Prime Minister Netanyahu has notably not moved out of the prime minister's residence yet. And in fact, recently hosted former UN ambassador Nikki Haley there, along with Pastor John Hagee, who's the founder of Christians United for Israel. And in his departing speech in the Knesset, in English, for some reason, Netanyahu vowed, I'll be back and soon. So 
the question on everyone's lips is how long can government this ideologically diverse last? And then maybe the second question on everyone's lips is what's next for Netanyahu? What do you say to, to both of those uh, things? Well, I think that, you know, Netanyahu for the time being is going to be opposition leader and he's going to really try to be a thorn in Bennett and Saar's sides and talk about how they've become left wing and they've betrayed their voters, et cetera, et cetera. The question is, how long can that last? And that, of course, ties in with the question of how long the government can last, because, you know, if Netanyahu really causes the right to really turn on Bennett and Saar, which in a, a lot of it has turned on them, the, the rhetoric against them is, is very extreme, I would say. People are really upset on the right. You know, if that manages the, the pressure gets to be too much, then that could bring down the government. On the other hand, if they are willing, able to withstand the pressure, then Netanyahu might not want to stay opposition leader for, you know, two years, three years, and he might move on. Or there might be a strong enough challenge to him within Likud. There are a lot of murmurs. There's a lot of talk about people saying that Netanyahu's time is up. It's time to have a leadership race in Likud. Definitely, definitely much to watch there. I have two kind of lightning round questions for you, as it were. The first is, there's a whole new crop of government ministers. And through a kind of complicated parliamentary procedure, the appointment of those ministers led to many new members of Knesset coming in to the Knesset. So who are some of the most interesting new ministers or new members of Knesset who you think our listeners should know about and would kind of be excited about? Well, today, while we're recording this, history was made in the Knesset. We have the first ever deaf member of Knesset who was sworn in today. Her name is Shirley Pinto, and she's from Natalie Bennett's party. So that's one interesting person. Someone else who I think is very interesting is from the Blue and White Party. That's Defense Minister Benny Gantz's party. She was briefly in the Knesset, like for two months or something last year because it was some kind of reshuffle. But um, her name is Ruth Wasserman Lanza. She's the former deputy ambassador to Egypt and the diplomatic advisor to Shimon Peres while he was president. And she has a lot of really interesting things to say about international affairs. She was at the Jerusalem Post Conference in Dubai a couple of weeks ago, and I thought she was fascinating. So those are a couple of people that are very interesting. This government has two Arab ministers. Neither is new in the Knesset, but probably people that your listeners haven't heard of. So one is Isawi Fredj, who's from the Merits Party, which has not been in any coalition in 20 years. And he's going to be the regional cooperation minister, which was meant to sort of coordinate, work in tandem with the foreign ministry to coordinate sort of Middle East matters. So it will be very interesting that, to have an Arab in that position, an Arab-Israeli in that position. The other is um, Hamad Amar, who is a Druze member of Knesset and, and has been in the Knesset for a long time, 15, 20 years, something like that, from Yisrael Beitenu, a Victor Lieberman's party. And he is going to be a minister in the finance ministry. Um, so he is not the finance minister, Lieberman is, but he will be helping Lieberman. He is a black belt. One time they had an open house in the Knesset and Tessa members did all kinds of like activities for kids and stuff. And he and Safi Hanegbi, a former Likud minister, they're both like big into karate and they did like a whole exhibition match. I have it on my YouTube channel, which is like not really a functional YouTube channel, but if you want to look it up, you can see them doing karate. <laughs> Very cool. And then the last question, as a nod to your diplomatic portfolio, the Biden administration announced this week that Tom Nides will be the new U.S. ambassador to Israel. We at AJC have known Tom Nides for a long time. He traveled to Israel with AJC's Project Interchange. But what can you tell our listeners about you know, what to expect from Ambassador Nides? Well, people in Israel and in the U.S. really have only good things to say about him, although he made some salty comments that were quoted in Michael Oren's book, Ally, which I tweeted earlier today. I took some pictures of them, but even Michael Oren himself had some very positive things to say about Nides today. You know, he's very experienced both in the State Department and in Congress and in business, worked for Morgan Stanley for many years. And people in Israel with experience in the U.S.-Israel relationship know him well does come from the Obama administration, which in many ways is a disadvantage, even if Netanyahu is out, because people still feel those tensions. But I think that, you know, just as Secretary of State Anthony Blinken has developed good relationships here in Israel, I think that he will be able to as well. 
And I think that his business background is good because I think that that's become increasingly important in Israel's position in the region and the Abraham Accords and the U.S. plays a big role in that. Well, Lahav, I could ask you questions on this stuff all day long, but you've given us a great grounding in this new government. And we look forward to watching its many successes and the successes of the state of Israel in the months and years to come. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thousands of viewers tuned in to watch last week as three provocative Jewish luminaries on one stage discussed whether anti-Semitism in America has suddenly become acceptable. A link to the full session is posted in our show notes, but back by popular demand, here's a portion of the most talked about program at AJC Global Forum. Good evening. My name is Avi Mayer, and I'm AJC's Managing Director of Global Communications. Has anti-Semitism become mainstream? It's a question many Jews across America and around the world are asking themselves after the events of recent weeks. As Jews have been assaulted by thugs wearing Palestinian flags, as synagogues have been defaced with hateful graffiti, and as massive demonstrations have featured explicitly anti-Semitic signs and slogans, some public figures have risen in condemnation, others have issued mealy-mouthed statements, and others still, including celebrities, journalists, and elected officials, seem intent to fan the flames. Jews and their allies are left to wonder, is this the new normal? With us to discuss what we're seeing, how we got here, and how we might chart a path forward are three leading thinkers and writers on the subject of anti-Semitism today. Brett Stevens, an opinion columnist with the New York Times, Barry Weiss, a prominent journalist and writer, and Simone Rodan Benzaken, director of AJC Europe. Welcome to you all. And I start with a question for all three of you, starting with you, Brett. How did we get here? The events of recent days and weeks didn't just materialize out of nowhere. Where did they come from? Well, I mean, it's obviously a long answer, but there has been a process of the renormalization of anti-Semitism dressed up in the guise of anti-Zionism going on for actually for 50 years, ever since, uh, or at least 46 years, ever since the UN declared that Zionism is racism. And I want to underscore this point because there's a kind of uh, factitious distinction between the two. I mean, what is anti-Semitism? It isn't simply racism against Jews, okay? Anti-Semitism is a conspiracy theory which holds that Jews are imposters and swindlers. And in the 19th century, the view was that Jews were imposters as Germans, imposters as French, imposters as Britons, and so on. They didn't really belong. And furthermore, that they were swindlers. They were stealing the wealth of the countries they had joined. What is anti-Zionism? It's the view that Jews are imposters and swindlers. They are imposters in the sense that they are pretending to be Middle Eastern, but actually are from somewhere else, have no connection to the land. And they're swindlers in the sense that they are stealing other, what belongs to other people. And that is the thread, the defamatory thread, which not only connects anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism, but shows that essentially they're identical, that it's the same, it's, it's the old wine in a new bottle. And forces, even those who are doing so unwittingly, have been normalizing this view for decades. And I think in, in the last few years, not only has it been normalized on the fringes of political discourse, it's being normalized in, um, in the center. I'll just say one more thing. I think that the Jewish community has too often let down its guard. We've been so terrified of being called McCarthyites or being seen as people associated with forces on the right that we have failed to call out in a clear and clarion way this connection, this identicality. And the result is that not only are Israelis at risk from Jerusalem to Tel Aviv to Stirot, they're now at risk in West Hollywood, in London, and on the streets of New York City. Thank you for that, Brad. Same question for you, Barry. How did we get here? What are the roots of the situation we're seeing today? I mean, obviously, seconding all of what Brett just said so articulately, what I would add is that I think we are now seeing the fruits of what this ideology that cloaks itself in the language of social justice, of intersectionality, of progress, and of civil rights has actually gotten the Jewish community of America. 
meaning there was this sense among large segments of the Jewish community that it's more important for us to have a seat at a table with people that are hostile to us than not have a seat at that table. And so there was a kind of witting self-erasure, self-abnegation, a sense that if we diminish this part of ourselves or play down our Zionism or play down ideas of Jewish particularism, that somehow we will come to be accepted. And the allyship that we will extend to these communities will therefore be extended to us in kind. I think that the past month, I hope, has disabused people of the idea that a strategy that requires Jews to sacrifice their own identity, their own dignity, to whitewash their history, gets us absolutely nowhere. The other thing that I think became extremely clear, right? If you have an ideology that says white people can't be victims, and the second part of that logic is Jews are white people, you will begin to understand why there is no corporate communications from the same people that had so much to say over this summer, even over the past months, as Asians are getting beaten in the streets of places like San Francisco and Oakland and New York. If Jews are white people, you know, it's an imperfect moniker, but when critical race theory or critical social justice or totalitarianism from the left, as I think about it, is put into practice, what it actually means for us is that we do not count. An ideology that is binary and that divides the world into white and black, oppressed and oppressor, you know, collectively guilty or collectively innocent, in which we fall on the wrong side of all of those binaries, we shouldn't be surprised, as so many in our community seem to be, that allyship and concern and empathy for people who are able to find even the tiniest microaggression is not extended to us when caravans are driving through the streets of North London saying, fuck the Jews and rape their daughters, or driving through the streets of West Hollywood saying, who is a Jew and then beating people, right? So I hope that if something good, or if there's a silver lining to come out of these past few weeks, it's that I hope people to some extent have been mugged by the reality of this ideology and understand that you know if we look to Jewish history, protection and safety and security for us never comes when we give in to ideologies that require us to erase ourselves. Certainly a lot to unpack there, and we'll do that in just a moment. But before we do, Simone, same question for you. How did we get here? What are the roots of the situation we find ourselves in today? Um, so first of all, both Brett and Barry said much already, and I second really all of it. Maybe just sort of to give a little bit of a, of a European perspective in terms of the, you know, America exports a lot to the world, the movie industry, the high-tech industry. Europe is often lagging behind, unfortunately, in the issue of anti-Semitism. That's not the case. So we have had a little bit of an experience, and really, really for the past 20 years. And AJC has recognized and spoken about the resurgence of anti-Semitism really since 2000 and 2001. It was long called in Europe new anti-Semitism. Now, 20 years on, um, it's not so new anymore. But what was new then? Again, Brett described much of it. And he mentioned the anti-racism is uh, Zionism is race initiative at the UN. There was also the Durban conference that happened exactly 20 years ago, a conference under the auspices as well um, of the UN in South Africa that was supposed to be about anti-racism and ended up being basically a, a hate fest against Israel, against Zionism, against ultimately Jews. And so it was in this configuration that Jews were no longer seen as the enemy race, as it used to be the case under Nazism. But it was the case that by instrumentalizing anti-racism, Zionism suddenly became the racist ideology. So all of this, I think, has really created a very dangerous cocktail in Europe. And this is one of the reasons why, you know, in France, for example, we speak about, we use a term called Islamo-Gauchisme, which means sort of Islamo-Leftism. The idea that, you know, you have the anti-imperialist far left that creates sort of a, an alliance with Islamist forces on the ground. And this is why when you look at the demonstrations in Paris, in Brussels, in Germany, in London, you have this mix of, you know, far left voices together with really radical Islamist voices on the ground. 
Thank you, Simone. Barry, I actually like to go back to you because you started your remarks with a reference to this new ideology that's threatening to undermine American liberalism and poses grave threats to Jews, as you've written on several occasions. Could you go into what that new ideology is and why it is the Jews to be so deeply concerned about it? Yeah, I mean, basically, it's an ideology that undermines liberalism. So I really believe, to kind of cut to the chase, that any initiative that's focusing on sort of anti-Semitism, qua anti-Semitism, and isn't focusing on the roots of where this is coming from, is destined to fail. This ideology undermines everything that makes America exceptional. It basically says that because the, I mean, it's even deeper than America, it really goes back to enlightenment values. Like, because the ideas of the enlightenment were created by dead white men who had terrible ideas about any number of minority issues, or because the founders themselves were moral hypocrites and some of them were slavers. It means that the ideas themselves that those people came up with are rotten to the core. And therefore the institutions and the ideas and this sort of amazing scaffolding that we live in needs to be undermined from within. That is really the answer for it on one foot. What it looks like practically is it basically says you know, the old ideas of, you know, being able to debate and disagree, the idea that we are all created in the image of God, the idea that we're all entitled to equality under the law, the idea that we don't hold individuals guilty for the sins of their parents. This is fundamental. The idea that the way that we judge an idea is not based on the identity of the speaker, but the quality of the truth claim that they're making. I could go on and on and on. These are ideas that we all, I think, in America, have taken for granted. These seemed as obvious as gravity. And I think what's happening now, and I find myself in so many debates having to defend these things that I grew up in a world where we took them for granted, the reason is because this ideology has been so effective at undermining them, and undermining them not from the far right, but undermining them from the language of historical justice, repair of past suffering, the new civil rights movement. And I could go on and on and on. I've written about this extensively. And so an ideology that divides the world, as we know very well from you know recent history in Europe, that divides the world into pure and impure, that divides the world into good or bad, forces of light, forces of darkness. This is just a new way of doing that. And anyone who has studied Jewish history knows extremely well where that winds up. And I think the way that it's functioning here in America, right, is it's, it's really interesting because you just see the way that we're being squeezed in opposite directions. On the far right, what the far right says about us is that we're like the greatest trick the devil has ever played. We appear to be white, but in fact, we Jews are loyal to black people and brown people and immigrants and Muslims. When the people in Charlottesville marched with their tiki torches shouting, Jews will not replace us, that was what they were articulating. When Robert Bowers, the murderer, neo-Nazi, walked into the synagogue where I became a bat mitzvah, Tree of Life, the reason he chose that synagogue was that the previous Shabbat, Tree of Life had participated in this highest initiative of refugee Shabbat. And yet, on the far left, they are making the exact mirror image claim. They are saying, these Jews are the ultimate white people. They say that they're victims. They say that they're subjected to more hate crimes based on their religion than any other group. But look at them. They've achieved so much. They have success far in excess of their proportion of the population. They benefit from white privilege. They benefit from a white supremacist system. And not only that, not only are they guilty of being white supremacist adjacent, they are also loyal to the last standing bastion of white colonialism in the Middle East. And so that is the way, practically speaking, whatever its jargon that tries to confuse you, that is how this ideology functions. And so I think it's very important for the Jewish community to not be taken in by incredible marketing and slogans and to look under the hoods of these movements and see what they're really about. Thank you for that, Barry. Brett, you wrote two weeks ago that Jews should view recent instances of violent anti-Semitism that are tied to Israel less as an outrage than as an omen. What exactly did you mean by that? And what should American Jews do about it? Well, this goes, I think, to some extent to what Simone said earlier, 
which is that what we are witnessing in the last month or so in the United States vis-a-vis position of the Jews seems to me very similar to what I was witnessing in Europe when I was working in Brussels in the late 1990s and the first few years of this century, which is the Europeanization of the Jewish question here. And that's manifest in some ways that are quite visible. Every time I pass a synagogue, I see a police presence outside. I see barricades. I see security measures that certainly I never encountered at the end of the 20th century or even the first few years of this one. But you're seeing it in invisible or maybe less visible ways as well. And here I really want to touch on what I thought were Barry's really extraordinary and and profound remarks. Look, it's very easy to spot the extreme anti-Semitism of the right because they're, as Barry said, with tiki torches saying Jews will not replace us. They couldn't make it more obvious, right? It's more difficult to see the anti-Semitism coming up from the left for a variety of reasons. One is that traditionally, most American Jews, most Jews have been people of the left, right? That is sort of our political tribe, not mine, as I think many people know. But generally speaking, our political tribe has emerged from forces associated with the left, whether it was in France in the 19th century or in the United States during the Roosevelt era and onward. So it's always more difficult to see it coming from your side. Secondly, and this goes to what I said earlier, there's a kind of semantic wordplay where the view is, well, not only is anti-Zionism not anti-Semitism, but it's an outrage to describe someone who's an anti-Zionist as perhaps a presumptive anti-Semite, not least because they share so many of the same tropes and the same prejudices. But the third reason, and this is, I think, very important, is that the left, for better and worse, controls the high towers of culture, right? And if you think that to some extent, cultural attitudes, attitudes about what is taboo and what is not taboo, kind of trickle down from the top. This is not trickle down economics, this is trickle down culture theory. And I think there's something to be said for it. Then that poses a particularly unique danger because what we're finding on college campuses, and Barry was absolutely right, it doesn't mean just because you didn't pass the BDS resolution doesn't mean it hasn't become a BDS campus, is that the culture has been saturated The high culture, the elite culture, has been saturated with anti-Zionist and effectively anti-Semitic tropes, which are now spreading through kind of the lower stages of American culture. It's okay now to say that Israel is the most repressive, colonialist, genocidal state in the world. Leave aside the fact that that is a bonkers point of view. It's okay to say that. It is okay to say that Israel is gratuitously murdering Palestinian children, apparently because that's something Israelis do, just as that was something Jews supposedly did in 12th century uh, England. There are no taboos connected to this. You know, I was in the village the other day in Manhattan when one of these Palestinian caravans came through on the back of trucks driving alarmingly fast down McDougal Street and intimidating everyone. And what's significant isn't that these people represent some huge number, some huge force, right? They don't represent a huge force. What's significant is they weren't ashamed of doing what they were doing. What's significant is they knew that at least on some of those street corners, they were being met with cheers. What's significant is, and and Barry put this point very, very well, what's significant is that when the attacks are made against Jews, it is incredibly to elicit a statement from a chancellor of a university, like Rutgers, okay, to say, (laughs) I condemn anti-Semitism, period, period. Not, and I also condemn every other form of racism and xenophobia and misogyny and transphobia and so on. I condemn anti-Semitism, period. And after he issued this mealy-mouthed statement, he apologized for it the next day. And that is why I underscore the fact that this is an omen of where the culture is going if the American Jewish community doesn't start to think seriously about what it owes itself and what it is owed by the rest of the American community. Thank you, Brett. Barry, it's down to you. How do we fight back? Well, first of all, this has been an honor. I admire every single person here so much and look to all of you for your moral courage. For me, it's a very Jewish answer because Simone and Brett have covered the rest. And I will simply say that The more that we root down into Jewish history, 
and Jewish identity and the ideas that have transformed not just the Jewish people, but have transformed the world, the more we will be able to see what is asked of us in this moment. Jewish history is not just history. It is like a lighthouse. It is a moral manual for how to live. And if we look back to Jewish history, we will see two things. First of all, it will put whatever sacrifices are being asked of us right now into unbelievable perspective. If the worst thing that happens to you is that you have to leave a job at the New York Times or get ratioed on Twitter, think about what Natan Sharansky had to live through for the sake of defending the Jewish people. Think about what Hannah Senesh had to live through. Think about what Esther had to live through. Like, it's thousands of years. Choose anyone you want. And every one of those people had to sacrifice so much so that we could have the privilege, frankly, to get ratioed on the internet. Consider it a privilege and a badge of honor that that's what's being asked of us right now. That's the first thing. The second lesson we learn from Jewish history is not just sacrifice, it is that small groups of people, often from the fringes of Jewish society, have bent reality and changed the world. Herzl being one example, Avi, as we were talking about before we began, of a man who was putting up a Christmas tree in his home when the chief rabbi of Vienna came to visit him as he was writing The Jewish State. A man who during the Zionist Congress writes in his journal that the most nerve-wracking part of it was that he was asked to give an aliyah and he didn't know the words. That is the man who transformed Jewish history. We could go back. We could go back to the White Rose. We could go back all down the line. Oftentimes, Jewish leadership and Jewish visionaries and Jewish moral courage does not come from people that have the name president or CEO by their name. It comes from people often at the fringes of Jewish life. And so I would just say to everyone watching, if you think of yourself, I'm not a leader, I don't have a position of power, no, no. Teenagers have changed Jewish history. And so I think that is the very important thing for all of us to think about in our own life. How can we live up to the sacrifices that our ancestors made to make of these freedoms that we enjoy, to live by them, to live lives that are worthy of their sacrifice. So I would just say to everyone that's maybe despairing or grieving that the world that they inherited is no longer that the world they're living in, think about Jewish history. Think about what other people have endured. That will give you perspective and that will also give you, I think, incredible sense of power and of empowerment of what's possible for us to do right here and now. Barry, Brett, Simone, thank you for a stimulating conversation and for helping us chart a way forward. Thank you all very, very much and have a good evening. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. And joining us at our Shabbat table this week is Dr. Laura Shaw Frank, the director of AJC's Contemporary Jewish Life Department and the acting director of AJC New York. Laura, when you're talking with your family and friends at your Shabbat table this weekend, what are you going to be talking about? Hey, Sefi. So I am really looking forward to this Shabbat. The 22-year-old daughter of dear friends of ours in Israel is in America for the summer, and she's staying with us this Shabbat. So aside from the fact that I cannot wait to see her, this feels like the perfect Shabbat for her to be with us. AJC just released the results of two surveys, one of American Jews and one of Israeli Jews, that looked at the education each receives about the other, the literacy each have about the other, and the connection each have for the other. And you can find those surveys on our website, and you definitely should. In terms of connection, at least on the surface, things actually look pretty good. Our surveys found that 60% of American Jews say that being connected to Israel is important to their Jewish identity, and 75% of Israeli Jews see a thriving diaspora as vital to the long-term future of the Jewish people. But when you dig a little deeper, the picture isn't quite as rosy. Younger and more secular Jews in each community have weaker connections to the other than older or more religiously affiliated Jews. The reasons for those weakening connections are complicated, but our surveys put some pretty stark statistics behind one of the most important reasons which is that American and Israeli Jews actually know very little about one another. We don't understand the societies in which the other live. We don't understand each other's worldviews or even, frankly, each other's Jewish identities. And if we care about keeping the bond between Israel and American Jewry strong, we have a lot of work to do. We need to invest much more into building knowledge about and understanding of each other, 
We need to reach a lot more American and Israeli Jews with nuanced and deep education about the other, and we need many more spaces and opportunities for interaction. Which brings me back to my Shabbat table. My kids are going to laugh when they hear this, but I'm not planning on talking about anything specific at our Shabbat table. I plan on sitting back and letting the conversation flow between my teenage and 20-something American children and our Israeli guest. I don't know what the contents of the conversation will be, but I know that by the end of the meal, we will have a bond of familiarity and understanding that can only come from listening to and learning about one another. What are you going to be talking about at your Shabbat table, Manya? Sefi, Laura, at our Shabbat table, we will be talking about unlikely Jewish heroes. As you heard earlier in the episode from Barry Weiss, you don't have to be all that Jewish to leave your mark on Jewish history. Even Theodore Herzl put up a Christmas tree. Ordinary Jews, secular or religious, can speak up and make a difference. I live in northern New Jersey, where a contentious conversation about a so-called Jewish hero has been unfolding. Last month, for Jewish American Heritage Month, the Montclair Public Schools selected the late Rabbi Meir Kahana as a notable Jewish history maker. Kahana founded the Jewish Defense League, a militant Zionist organization that the FBI classified as a far-right terrorist group in 2001. Kahana also founded a political party that has been barred from the Israeli Knesset since 1988 and declared a terrorist organization by Israel, the United States, and the European Union. During the month set aside to celebrate American Jews' achievements, contributions, a.k.a. heroes, Kahana doesn't really rise to the top of the list. You can believe parents let the school district know they were not amused. Within hours, the high school's assistant principal apologized, followed by the superintendent, saying the district will learn from this incident. That learning process has begun, thanks to Rabbi Ariane Weitzman. Last week, the Reconstructionist rabbi led a workshop for school administrators to explain Jewish-American history as well as the roots and evolution of anti-Semitism. I reached out to Rabbi Weitzman to ask her how we can prevent this from happening again and constructively respond when it does. To the former question, she suggested a magic wand, since those are in short supply, she said we must educate the educators when something similar inevitably does take place. Again. It doesn't help that there's so much passion and frustration around public schools in our neck of New Jersey these days. Anywhere, really. Because of the pandemic, students in Montclair didn't see a classroom until late spring. In my nearby town, my son wasn't in school five days a week until after spring break. The Kahana gaffe was just more fuel for the fire. Then... Days later, Hamas fired rockets into Israel, Israel retaliated, and a conflict unfolded for the next two weeks, sparking protests and incidents of anti-Semitism around the globe, and putting the Jewish community on edge. Rabbi Weitzman said she tried to explain all of this to the school administrators. The ancient origins of anti-Semitism, how those ancient myths and tropes echo across today's political spectrum— and the cultural memory of the Jewish community that collectively recalls the institutional oppression of years past. If a school puts out something that raises the hair on your neck, you have this really strong memory of what it was like, she said. In addition, discussions of Israel among high school students are fraught, she said. Even if teenagers agree with critiques of Israel's policies, they are struck with a sense of fear when people speak about the place where the other half of the world's Jewish population lives. This was not a passive-aggressive jab from the school district, she said. This was a result of ignorance and an overworked staff member who relied on one website and simply didn't have the time to do adequate fact-checking. Earlier this week, the Montclair Township Council sent an email to the community condemning anti-Semitism and the rise in hate crimes against Jews. No one should ever feel frightened or unsafe because of who they are and what faith they practice, the email said. We want everyone in our community, no matter what their background may be, to always feel respected and welcome in Montclair. Weitzman said, for everyone to feel respected and welcome, social justice-minded communities like Montclair must learn how oppressions are intertwined. But it's a lot to untangle. That said, if Barry was right, if Jews, even those on the fringes, can leave our mark on Jewish history, perhaps it's up to us, ordinary Jews in progress, to help them untangle that knot. I appreciate Rabbi Weitzman for setting the example. And that's what we'll be talking about at our Shabbat table this week. Sefi? Prime Minister Naftali Bennett has been referred to as Israel's first religious prime minister. And that's true. 
As best I can reckon, he's also got to be the first traditionally religious Jewish world leader in about 2,000 years. It's extremely exciting for me, as someone who wears a kippah all the time, to see another kippah-wearing person in such a prominent role on the world stage. Parenthetically, it's also exciting for me, as a future bald person, to read in JTA about Bennett's strategies for keeping his kippah on his hairless head. I am filing those away as tips for my future self. But referring to Bennett as simply religious or orthodox erases a lot of texture from his life story. That's why I was glad to read Rabbi Eli Weinstock's blog in the Times of Israel this week about when he used to have Bennett over for Shabbat dinner. In the early 2000s, newly married Naftali and Gilat Bennett were living in New York City, where the future prime minister was running a cybersecurity startup. Searching for a synagogue that they could attend together and that would be accessible to Gilat, who had a secular upbringing, they found the beginner's service at the Upper East Side's Kehilath Jeshrin, which is universally called KJ. At the time, Rabbi Weinstock led that service at KJ, became friends with the Bennetts, and helped them along their Jewish journey. Here is how Prime Minister Bennett has described the experience. Quote, We had to leave Israel and travel to New York for Gilat, my secular wife, to grow closer to Judaism. It was an open house Judaism where nobody measured your sleeves or asked how you got to Shul. They were just glad you came. It was like Avraham's open tent. That's the type of Judaism we need more of in Israel. That is a beautiful and entirely correct sentiment and one not always heard from Orthodox Israelis, even modern ones like Prime Minister Bennett. A great deal hinges on Israel's prime minister being able to bridge gaps between religious and secular Israelis and between an Israel where the principal conception of Judaism is orthodox, even if it's only practiced by a minority, and the diaspora where most Jews are from more liberal streams. With this background, Prime Minister Bennett is hopefully set up for success on that front. Plus, I think from now on, I'll always be wondering whether there might be a future Prime Minister of Israel at my Shabbat table. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or learn more at ajc.org slash people of the pod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag peopleofthepod, and hop onto Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producers are Kukong Do and Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.